Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Now, usually on the show, we present a certain theme and bring you an hour of stories based around that theme. But every now and again, we break loose from that format and deal out one of our wild cards shows. And that's the case today. We'll follow up on WAMU's recent series about house flipping in D.C., what's going on in this overheated housing market and how people might avoid being burned. We'll also bring you the latest edition of Clips, our ongoing exploration of the city's barbershops in partnership with Elevation DC. And we'll meet the former NASA scientist known as Mother of Hubble. We'll begin today's show in Baltimore, which has seen its share of major news events these past few weeks. Peaceful protests, burned down buildings, the arrival of the National Guard, and then charges brought against six police officers. But some in Baltimore believe that amid all these stories, media outlets, especially cable TV news, missed the message. The message of Freddie Gray, the 25-year-old who died while in custody of the Baltimore police. Hans Anderson brings us this look at how some locals feel about how their stories been told. On the afternoon of Monday, April 27th, the Mandelman Mall was broken into, and the now infamous CVS on Pennsylvania and North Avenue burned. The next day, at 10 p.m., Sean Hannity at Fox News threw to Geraldo Rivera, who was live outside that same CVS. We go right to the ground tonight in Baltimore with the very latest. Our own Geraldo Rivera is there. Geraldo. We have grown it. Hey, Sean. Rivera was supposed to talk about the curfew, which had just gone into effect a few minutes earlier. In the video, he's with Maryland State Senator Catherine Pugh. But he can't talk about the curfew because he's being confronted by a demonstrator who is getting between him and the camera. Senate Majority Leader Pugh, come on, get out of the way, man. Get out of the way. Don't touch me. Stop blocking my camera. Stop blocking my camera. I mean, I've grown up in Baltimore City. I love Baltimore City. That's Kwame Rose. Everyone who knows me before the video came out, this is... That's just me talking. That's just regular things that I point out all the time to regular people. Rose is the 20-year-old man who confronted Rivera. There are two camera angles on this incident. There are Fox's cameras. You just heard that video. And then there's the video of the incident taken by a bystander. I want you and Fox News to get out of Baltimore City because you're not here reporting about the the boarded up homes and the homeless people under MLK. You're not reporting about the poverty levels up and down North Avenue. Others in the crowd cheer him on. You can see people holding cameras forming a huddle around Rivera and Rose while Senator Pugh stands in the middle of it all. Rose calls in vain for the cameras to leave. I had no idea that it was live on TV at all. I felt like it was a time someone should speak up and stop being scared of the cameras and say something meaningful. The videos went viral, reposted by The Washington Post, The Guardian, Bloomberg, The Baltimore Sun, illustrating how many in Baltimore were upset with the news media the way the story had shifted so dramatically the night before, the way the cameras flocked to the city on Tuesday after seeing fires and a sizable bump in Nielsen ratings on Monday. Rivera later said he was just doing his job and telling an important story. He said that demonstrators like Rose were filled with emotion, passion, and misguided anger. After the night they had seen here on Monday, uh, we were worried that it would become that on Tuesday. And it's exactly that kind of kind of youthful anarchy yeah. right. that led to that uh, destruction and pain in that community. Rose, however, says that wasn't the story on Tuesday. One thing I wanted to mainly do was get back to the issue for the Baltimore black community is that we're not here to defend ourselves from the riots. We're, we're here to rally for justice for Freddie Gray. This is just one example of how looting and fires on Monday changed the dynamic of the media coverage. 
Alice Robbins is the director for the Center on Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University and a former journalist. To her, Monday, April 27th was the day the TV news outlets changed their focus. Television coverage of fires, of looting, the helicopter, uh, images of African-American men breaking into the CVS suggested that this was a story about rioting and looting, as if the story started there. The TV coverage, she says, hasn't changed in 23 years. In the meantime, don't go near this area. South Central Los Angeles at Florence and Normandy. Robbins was in L.A. in April of 1992, where a video showing police beating Rodney King eventually sparked riots. All these years later, and nothing has changed. Both initial events were videoed. And I, I, I guess I would have liked television to replay not the riots, but the initial beating of Rodney King, the initial beating, and asked, what could we have been doing better since 1992? Why are we still in the streets during a protest telling the same story? And then Robbins rattles off a list of events since 1992. We've had 9-11. We've had Katrina. We've had the election of our first black president. We've had multiplicity of wars. And yet nothing has changed for young black men in urban settings. I would have liked to see that story told. Whatever's coming across in the media, it is what it is. That's a portrayal. But we in modern 2015. So you think people only get their news source from one place? That's Faraji Muhammad. He serves as the peace coordinator for the Peace by Peace program in Baltimore. We can look at this and say, well, it's the media fault. They blew it out of proportion. No, the people blew it up. The media just happened to catch it. So I don't, I don't blame the media in terms of how things come across. And I'm not going to be, you know, they say, well, you should have, the media should have positive imagery. That's fine. That's true. But that positive imagery has to be balanced, too. That, yeah, it's not good in Baltimore. There's some deep pain. That's not good. It's a complicated issue for Muhammad. On the one hand, he feels some of the coverage in Baltimore has blamed the wrong people. But Muhammad also appeared on CNN to talk about what was going on. As activists and as organizers, we do want the media in our struggle to help for, so that way we can get our message out there, so that way we can shape our narrative. Kwame Rose agrees. The media's job is to get a story out there. It's just that we have to focus and, and, and force a focus on which story and whether or not that's the truth and whole story. Rose has a new role in the protests. He addressed thousands of demonstrators recently. When I met him just outside City Hall, people were stopping him to laud him, shake his hand. And the coverage of Baltimore has shifted dramatically since April 27th. The state's attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, charged six officers in the death of Freddie Gray. Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake asked the Department of Justice to investigate the police department. There's been no looting, no violence. Many news outlets are calling the mood here joyous. Faraji Muhammad again. What we saw on that Monday night had to happen. I'm glad it did happen because it had awakened a whole city. You know, and not just on the ground level, but all the way to the top, to the top officials to see that if you don't do right by the community or by the people, you're going to see some you're going to see some repercussions of that. For many in Baltimore, their story has the same feel as those that have played out throughout the country. 
but they're hoping for a different ending. I'm Hans Anderson. Flip this house. Flip or flop. Flip men. Reality television these days is full of programs about people buying a fixer-upper house, sprucing it up, and then selling it for a much higher price. But here's the thing about flipping houses. It doesn't always go so well. Here in Washington, D.C., as the real estate market has heated back up in recent years, some buyers have gotten burned by shoddy work on the part of developers and contractors. WAMU's Martin Ostermule has been reporting on the problem all week in his series, Flipped Off. He joins us now to take us behind the scenes. Hi, Martin. Hi, Rebecca. You chose to open your series with the tale of Stuart Crampton and his wife, who encountered a world of homeowner pain after buying a renovated row house in Columbia Heights back in 2011. Uh, Let's hear a bit of tape from that piece. You want to believe that your new house is is here to stay and that it's, it's a good investment. It was not. So I think there was a gradual realization you know, finally, you know, I kind of stopped denying it to myself, especially after like the sixth or seventh serious problem popped up. At, at first, we were trying to do the repairs, pay for the repairs uh, with our, you know, ourselves. Um, but as things went on and the other problems unfurled, it just became untenable. My questions are, first of all, how did you learn about this couple's situation? And how did you realize that this wasn't an isolated tale of woe, that, that perhaps we had a larger problem on our hands. So I first heard of Stewart's case because he wrote a letter to Prince of Petworth. It's a popular neighborhood blog. He wrote it last August. It was a very personal kind of description of what he'd gone through. So I quickly emailed him. I said, listen, this is fascinating. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about it. He was hesitant at first because there was a lawsuit that he had filed against a developer and he didn't really want to go that much more public by going, you know, on public radio or going to the, going to the TV stations and whatnot. So he held off took a couple months and eventually earlier this year he came around he said absolutely let's talk I want to get this out as widely as possible because I don't think I'm the only one so I started digging a little bit and just the developer who had purchased his home in Columbia Heights had actually purchased a dozen other homes just around the block really all in one kind of small area in Columbia Heights so I knew it wasn't just an isolated case I went to other homeowners that had purchased from this developer and they confirmed yep they had Many of the same problems, not to the same degree, but they still had very similar problems like no insulation in the house, that sort of stuff. And after that, it really wasn't hard. The more you start digging in, the more quickly you find that certain developers buy a lot of houses in specific neighborhoods, quickly flip them, sell them, you know, put them back on the market for a lot more money. And homeowners quickly find the problems. And then once you find one, you'll find another. And there was one case where there was a group of homeowners who'd formed this kind of support group just to talk through the problems that they had and try to find solutions. Martin, I know you've received a ton of feedback on your reporting this week. Uh, You've heard from residents, but also from a contractor and a home inspector. Tell us about some of those responses. Yeah, so I did get a lot of responses from residents who either live next to a property that they think was done poorly, it was illegally constructed, or they may be living in a house themselves that was poorly flipped. But I also got really great feedback. There was a guy from Richmond, a contractor, who called me. He said, listen, I'm licensed in D.C. I'm licensed in Virginia and Maryland, all up and down the East Coast. And the one thing he had to say about D.C. is that we all expect that licensed contractors means that they're good or that they're somewhat professionally able to do the work that they're doing. But he was saying that D.C. is weird in the sense that it charges a ton for a contractor's license but has virtually no professional requirements or standards for contractors. So he basically called it a a total racket. 
Then there was a home inspector who said, listen, that's another part of the story that's hugely important because we all, when we buy homes, the majority of us get our get a home inspector to make sure that the house is what we want it to be. And he was saying that one of the big problems is that home inspectors are very closely linked to realtors. They depend on them for business. And so a lot of time they don't want to sink the sale that they're eventually going to make some money off of. Um, This home inspector's name is Jim Delgado. He was a former building inspector with D.C., and he is now a private home inspector. He likes to call himself, or he jokingly has been referred to as the deal killer, because apparently he is that intrusive in his home inspections. But um, this is what he had to say. There are inspectors out there that, you know, they just, they're generalists. It looks good. It's not leaking. Hey, you know, nice place. It seems the person you choose as your home inspector is is really important when buying a house. And Martin, you actually should know because you just sold a condo and are now looking to buy a house yourself. I'm wondering, how has your reporting on all of this affected your own feelings about purchasing a home in D.C.? Well, it's totally terrified me, to be honest. And only because I I remember while I was reporting the story, at the same time I was going to open houses in D.C. neighborhoods, I was looking at renovated places, and I was doing what everyone else does. You see the things that are aesthetically pleasing. You look at the stainless steel appliances, you look at the new drywall, you look at the new flooring, and you say, this place is done, it's great, I could totally move in here. But I didn't stop to think of the things that are behind the drywall and below the floors. And that's where the trouble begin for all these residents who complained to me for the story. They said they had no idea the structural changes were made to the house because they couldn't see them. So it's it's scared me. But at the same time, it's given me a set of tools that next time I go into a fully renovated house, I'll know what questions to ask, what to look for, and what resources are available to me and to any home buyer in the district to make sure that when you buy a house, you're not buying a badly flipped house. If you missed Martin's series this week or you want to listen to it again, you can find a link to Flipped Off on our website, metroconnection.org. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now we turn to you. Have you been a flipper or a flippy in the D.C. housing market? Is it really the Wild West that some people describe? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. After the break, the woman who broke NASA's glass ceiling to help us understand the wonders of space. The fact that I recognize the the vastness of the universe and I recognize how small the Earth is, I think gives me a different impression of of the meaning of, of life and the meaning of man. That and more as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. No theme this week as we bring you one of our freewheeling wildcards shows. In just a bit, we'll meet a group of African-American women trying to start an open conversation about depression and suicide in their community. And we'll bring you Bookend, our series on a literary life in the nation's capital. First, though, this year marks the 25th anniversary of the launch of NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, To this day, the pioneering telescope continues to send back to Earth spectacular images from the outer reaches of the solar system. 
Lauren Ober introduces us to the driving force behind Hubble, a woman named Nancy Grace Roman, who ushered in a new era of deep space exploration at NASA. On a clear Florida day 25 years ago, the astronauts of the space shuttle Discovery fired up their rocket engines and roared into space. On board was a very important piece of equipment. Four main engines start, T minus six, five, four, three, two, one, and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. Sitting in the shuttle's payload bay was the Hubble Space Telescope, a school bus-sized piece of equipment that would allow scientists to see farther into space than they ever had before. And this is Hubble Telescope Control in Greenbelt. We have uh, been given the go-ahead to begin commanding a release of the forward latches, which hold the uh, solar arrays in place during launch along the side of the telescope. The telescope was a triumph of human ingenuity and perseverance. NASA first approved the project in 1969, but it took nearly 30 years for the instrument to become a reality. And it's possible that this telescope that could see deep into the cosmos would never have come to fruition were it not for one woman. I'm Nancy Grace Roman, an astronomer, and I started out, as most astronomers do, with a university job. But uh, in my generation... Women weren't very welcome at universities, and so I found a job in the government, and the government was appreciably more welcoming. What Roman is leaving out is the fact that she wasn't just working for the government. She was NASA's first chief of astronomy, and she was responsible for setting up the Hubble Space Telescope program, hence her nickname, the Mother of Hubble. When NASA was formed, I was asked if I knew anyone who would like to set up a program in space astronomy. And I gave it a lot of thought because I wasn't at all sure I wanted to leave research. But I felt that setting up a program that would influence astronomy for 50 years was more than I could resist. And so I took the job. Today, the 89-year-old Roman is retired and lives in a high-rise apartment building in Bethesda. There, she keeps tabs on what's happening in the world of astronomy. And this year, what's happening is the 25th anniversary of the Hubble launch. For Roman, it's a time to reflect on how she landed in a field that was not at all friendly towards women in the early days. Her passion for the stars began at a young age. Between fifth and sixth grade, I organized my friends into an astronomy club to uh, study the constellations. And uh, we met once a week and thoroughly enjoyed it. Roman went on to earn a Ph.D. in astronomy and briefly worked in academia before joining the newly formed NASA. She was the agency's first female executive and over the years helmed many departments, including solar physics and relativity. But while Roman wore many hats at NASA during her time there, the thing she is best known for is shepherding the Hubble Space Telescope into existence. Roman says she doesn't remember much about the telescope's launch. It was all kind of a blur. But she does remember when scientists discovered a huge error in the telescope's mirror. The problem with the mirror was that uh, it had been ground very, very accurately, but to the wrong figure. And what we did was essentially give it a pair of eyeglasses. That mistake could have cost Roman her job. She was one of the project's biggest champions, and a lot was resting on her shoulders. I thought, did I oversell it? But now that they got the mirror situation under control, I don't think I did. But uh, 
it was very discouraging. Once the error was repaired, scientists were able to conduct groundbreaking research on the earliest galaxies, the existence of black holes, and the universe's rate of expansion. Today, 25 years after Roman watched the Hubble Space Telescope hitch a ride into space, scientists are still making discoveries with the instrument. But soon they will have another space telescope that will allow them to see even farther back in time. At NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, engineers are building the James Webb Space Telescope. It will have the potential to allow scientists to see when the first stars actually turned on. It's exciting, partly because we're going to be able to to see farther back. Uh, It's going to be useful in trying to understand the birth of stars. It has a lot of exciting possibilities. All those exciting possibilities of the James Webb Space Telescope might never have been on NASA's radar were it not for Roman. Her work has laid the foundation for future discoveries. So maybe if scientists do eventually figure out when the first starlight happened, they'll have Roman to thank. I'm Lauren Ober. Researchers say Americans have about a 17% chance of suffering from major depression at some point in our lives. And many people won't get proper treatment for that depression for a whole slew of reasons. D.C. native Tempe Satcher Dukosin isn't a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but she meets a lot of women through her work as a hairstylist. And after two of those women committed suicide, she decided to take action. And, as Tara Boyle tells us, create a support group for African-American women struggling with depression. (laughs) Tempe Satcher Dukasin is someone who brings people together. Today, she's hosting about a dozen guests at a party in the salon she runs out of her home. Women are sitting in a semicircle, eating chicken wings and cupcakes and laughing, especially when Tempe is doing the talking. The mood is lighthearted, but I'm here to talk with Tempe and several other women about something serious. The suicide prevention group Tempe recently founded. It's called the Ladies of Life. We head out to a quiet spot on her deck to chat about how she and these other women found each other. There are a couple of ladies um, in the natural hair field, um, which is my bread and butter, and I eat, breathe, and sleep natural hair things such as um, products, services, and things of that nature. And when I learned that there's a young lady... Um, that was a co-founder of a, of a certain product, I um, kind of felt heavy in my heart as to what it is that um, makes us want to commit suicide. And I know depression, and she, committed and she committed suicide. And then following that, it was another young lady shortly after learning about her death that it was another sister that committed suicide. She was a natural hair blogger. Two deaths within a short time frame. And so Tempe came up with the idea of this support group that would bring African-American women together once a month to talk, to share advice, to have a bit of fun out on the town. So we may go to a restaurant. Our first meetup was at a natural hair salon. So um, we are constantly looking for other places to be able to um, come out every month and kind of have fun and let them get a break from depression and stuff like that. 
One of the women who came out to one of those early events was 40-year-old Kim Capies. I am an author. I am a mentor, a domestic violence advocate. I'm also a mom of five. I'm also an empowerment speaker. Kim knows a lot about depression. She experienced plenty of it during the eight years she spent in an abusive relationship. There were times that, you know, I would just get beat for nothing. If I say something smart, I, I possibly would get punched in the face. Um, there was times on two occasions I had two black eyes. The abuse wasn't just physical. When I met my abuser, I had two kids. Me and him didn't have any kids at that time. And then, of course, as it went on, um, I began, began to have my first child by him. And then I had a second child by him. And so at that time, I had four. And he used to always tell me, nobody's going to want you because you have a lot of kids. Nobody wants a woman who has a lot of kids. Kim eventually got out of the relationship. But she says those eight years left their mark on her. I actually drove myself to a local cemetery in, Mer- in uh, Maryland. And where at that time I just cried out and was like, oh, God, take me. I don't want to be here anymore. Just take my life. What is my my purpose here? I don't want to be here. And, I mean, I used to literally sit there for not five and ten minutes. I mean, literally like hours at a graveyard. Kim has shared her story many times over the years. Not so for her friend Talia Lewis, who just started talking last year about the secret she's been carrying for 22 years. At the age of 12, um, I was molested by a family friend, um, someone who my family considered very, very close, like my uncles and my aunts grew up with him. Talia says the experience made her adolescence very difficult. I was left very confused, very, I felt isolated, but it also made me feel very, very insecure because I wasn't able to speak out about it. I was afraid to tell my friends because I thought they would laugh at me or, you know, abandon me or, you know, just talk about me. Tempe Satcher Dukeson says stories of abuse at the hands of men are, unfortunately, common among the ladies of life. A lot of us um, women, we didn't grow up with our fathers, the first man in our life, you know, other than... God. Our fathers are wasn't around to show us what real love was or to give us that hug and let them know how far to let a man go. You know, we learned these things from our single parents and our mothers. Tempe has her own story of abuse. She says she was once in a relationship with a man who would attack her and rip out her hair. So what I would do was start boiling some water and be ready to defend myself. And I used to keep the little keychain with the little mace in it. And that was one of the ways how I um, fought back my attacker. Being able to talk openly about these things was part of her inspiration for creating this support group. This is one of the reasons why I created Latest of Life, because I wanted to hear from myself, because, of course, my story from so long ago may not be the same type of stories that the ladies have. Tempe has big plans for the Ladies of Life. She's working to formalize the group's 501c3 nonprofit status. She created a Kickstarter page for donors who'd like to support the organization. And most of all, she's hoping to give women who feel alone a way to know they're anything but. I'm Tara Boyle. You can find a link to more information about the Ladies of Life on our website, metroconnection.org. Now, time to knock on some doors with our ongoing journey around the region. 
On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Tintallen, Maryland, and Congress Heights, D.C. My name is Monica Ray. I live in Congress Heights neighborhood. I've lived here for nearly 13 years. The Congress Heights neighborhood is in Ward 8, almost as far as you can go in the city before you get to Maryland. We're nestled between Bowling Air Force Base and 295, St. Elizabeth Hospital, and Atlantic and First Street. We have families who are renters. We have long-term residents who are homeowners um, and everything in between. Uh, Over the past four or five years, the community has gradually become more and more diverse. We are one of the last bastions of affordable housing. So young, urban professionals are coming in and purchasing property. So we've, we've seen our neighborhood change quite a bit over the past few years. St. Elizabeth's Hospital right now is our hottest new development project. The mayor's vision has been to create the tech center of the East at the St. East campus. We're excited about all of the development, the federal as well as the local development. The federal development will yield up to 14,000 new workers here. Congress Heights is a great place to live because we are filled with wonderful people, wonderful assets, and great potential for the future. My name is Carter Farrington. I live in Tintallen in Prince George's County, and I've lived here for a little over 10 years. Tintallen is located just off of uh, Indian Head Highway in Prince George's County. Tintallen is the name of a, a ruin of a castle in Scotland. The names of the streets correspond with those of names of, of famous Scottish golf courses. This was the hot new neighborhood in the late 60s and early 70s. If you speak to generally women of a certain age, they remember looking at homes in this neighborhood. They were a little more expensive than many other parts of, of, of the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. And many people, particularly politicians, came to this area. G. Gordon Liddy lived here. Tintown is unique because every home is unique. A lot of the original growth forest is maintained. Uh, we have 140 acres of green space in the center. Well, of course, we also have a golf course and marina. Tintallen is a great place to live because it's affordable, the lots are spacious, the homes are are spacious, and the people are very friendly. We heard from Monica Ray in Congress Heights and Carter Farrington in Tintallen. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, I am something they can never have. And that's something that's very arousing to them and stimulating to be told, no, no. A D.C. dominatrix chimes in on the district's status as one of the kinkiest cities in America. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're going theme-free this week with one of our free-wheeling, free-dealing Wild Cards shows. We'll kick off this part of the program with the newest installment in our ongoing series, Clips. Each month, we've been swinging by a different barbershop in the nation's capital in partnership with Elevation DC, a weekly online magazine about what's next for the city. This time on Clips, we'll meet Sheila Knox, who's been barbering in southeast Washington for more than three decades. What you getting? Oh, just take it down and... Uh, what about your face? 
little face work, make sure everything evened up. The past eight years or so have found Sheila cutting hair at Bryce's Barbershop. The African-American-owned institution opened its doors on Barracks Row more than 50 years ago. Nowadays, it's neighbor to all kinds of restaurants, shops, even the studios of the Shakespeare Theater Company. And then, of course, it's just a hop, skip, and jump from the oldest active post in the Marine Corps. Bryce's has been under renovation since August, so we met up with Sheila down the street at Ren's Barbershop. She's taking a chair there until Bryce's opens again later this year. Sheila says her barbering jobs have taken her all over Southeast, including Fairfax Village, the neighborhood where she grew up. It's also where, on her forearm, she received a very distinctive and professionally apropos tattoo. It's the uh, scissors, comb, and the tremors. I got this tattoo in 2002, 2003, when I was working at Fairfax Village Barbershop. Uh, but before I was up in Fairfax Village, this Marine came through from uh, Andrews. He was like, we could use you on A Street. I was like, for real? He was like, yeah. I said, but I, could, I couldn't leave Fairfax Village because I liked it at the time, plus I was making money. And he was like, man, we, we don't have nobody over there can cut hair like this. They would love you. And I thought about it. After a while, I went to another shop because everybody was like, come on up here and work. Yep. Then I thought about the Marine. After all those years, I thought about the Marine. I came over here, and I was going to uh, Marty's. Remember Marty's? I don't know if you remember Marty's. It's Carver's now. And on my way to Marty's, I parked in front of the barbershop. I was like, I wonder what the barbershop he was talking about. So when I went in there, I was like, hey. I said, excuse me. And the guy in there, he was like, I do need somebody. He's like, and then one of the guys was like, man, hire her. She's good. So, but I was at another shop with a good friend I grew up with. So, I was like, well, I'll let you know. I'll try to come. So, I've been here ever since. Yeah, yeah. And I like it because I meet a lot of people and I feel like at home. You get a lot of Marines and stuff and some stars and, you know. And then, you know, what's the butler that played on the Fresh Prince? So, you know, it's a, a theater next door. So, a lot of stars, you be like, I know you from somewhere. So, but let me tell you something. When I first started working at Bryce's, I had the most craziest Marines. Oh, my God. Rowdy, bad. They even had to calm down. He couldn't go in certain bars. That's how vicious it was. Yeah, they wasn't playing. They didn't mind fighting. They would shut down your whole bar. Like the ugly mug up there. And for a while, and Marley Malone's Marines couldn't go in there. These are different Marines now. The streets are more safer. Supposed to get their hair cut three inches on top and supposed to be high and tight. They don't wear it high and tight. I would give them a medium. But yeah, I like to prefer cutting a men's hair. I mean, anybody, short hair. Let me, let me say it like that, short hair. You know, not styling. I'm not a beautician. I don't like it. You have to like it. A lot of people cut hair, just cut it for the money. They don't care if you come back or not. No, not, not me, you know. You can't satisfy everybody. But we try. And that's, that's what makes it special. That was Sheila Knox, a barber at Bryce's Barbershop on Barracks Row on Capitol Hill. You can see Sheila Knox trimming, clipping, and buzzing away on our website. We also have a link to Elevation DC's write-up of Sheila's three-decade career. Just head to metroconnection.org.
And as we continue our look at D.C. barbershops, we want to hear from you. At last count, Washington had 112 licensed establishments. So if you have a favorite, let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. Your haircut is as short as mine. Good morning, Miss Snip, Snip, Snip. We'll turn now to a topic that's not for tender ears. So if you have children nearby, you might want to turn down the radio for the next few minutes. The topic is BDSM, shorthand for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. The publication of Fifty Shades of Grey and the movie that followed put BDSM, or kink as many people call it, in the spotlight. But the BDSM community in D.C. was thriving long before E.L. James penned her blockbuster book. In fact, several researchers have ranked D.C. as one of the kinkiest places in the nation. WAMU's Kristen Sorensen wanted to find out why. So she spent several months attending latex fetish parties and dungeon demonstrations and interviewed dozens of people about everything from whips to erotic wax. And it probably goes without saying, but some of the names in this story have been changed to allow interviewees to speak candidly about their practices in the boudoir. Michael's red brick home in Virginia seems perfectly ordinary. There's a manicured front yard and a fluffy black cat napping in the window. Hey. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Michael is in his 50s. He works a nine-to-five job in IT, and he makes a mean vegetarian pasta. He serves up dinner for me and his girlfriend, Rose, and then we get to the real reason I'm here, to see his dungeon. Okay, there are a couple rooms here. This is the main one. It's um, about 40 feet long, about 10 feet wide. You know, the uh, walls are painted one shade of gray. They're hung with uh, framed uh, pictures of uh, fetish and sadoerotic artwork. In other words, pictures of naked people tied up. There's also a vintage medical table and a bondage chair. It has pegs that make it easy to wind rope around someone's body. So what exactly goes on in this space? When I'm walking up to somebody at a party for the first time, I've never met them before, never seen them play or anything else, then we're definitely going to do some talking about what kinds of things you like. The first thing many kinksters point out is that the real world of BDSM play is not Fifty Shades of Grey. It's meant to be completely consensual. So before play can begin, there is a lot of communication about expectations, desires, and safe words. A safe word is a pre-established word used to stop activity at any time. Once everything is clear, the fun begins. Okay, so this this is a uh, plastic whip, lots of little tendrils of uh, blue plastic, and all of them hitting together, and wow, it really does burn. (laughs) As Michael continues to show me around the dungeon, the expression on his face shifts from serious to mischievous and back again. He is clearly in his element down here. But 20 years ago, when Michael first moved to D.C., he was struggling with some of his feelings, specifically his desire to tie women up. I was raised to respect women, so I grew up believing there was something terribly wrong with me because of my interest in and attraction to SM. I thought I was the only one, so I tried to hide it and what I liked and who I really was. I was split down the middle, and it was very isolating. But then Michael saw an ad for the Black Rose, 
a well-known BDSM organization in D.C. One night, he attended a meeting for newcomers. I walked in and thought, where are all the Playboy bunnies and big hairy-chested dudes in leather pants? These are just normal people. Michael says he felt a huge sense of relief. I thought, maybe I'm not a sick person after all. Maybe this is just a matter of taste or of preference. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're a good person or a bad person. Julie Fennell, a professor of sociology at Gallaudet University, says many people in the BDSM community can relate to that. It's already something that's hard to get in a healthy way, but it actually becomes worse because you have this cumulative feeling of guilt and shame that get built up. And I think the goal of the BDSM subculture, I mean, if there was only one goal, is really to help people find a way to make sense of these desires and try to form healthy relationships in spite of, and more importantly, because of those desires. In 2012, Fennell did a study on the BDSM subculture in the Mid-Atlantic area. She found that sex is the main motivation for many kinksters, but not all. For others, it's more about an intense feeling of excitement, or a spiritual experience, or non-romantic social bonding. Fennell says D.C. has such a solid BDSM scene because of strong local organizations such as the Black Rose and laws friendly to kink clubs. The D.C. region also has some of the most popular kink camps in the nation. Fennell's findings aren't merely academic for her. I am the only person who has researched the scene as an out kinkster myself. Meaning she participates in BDSM activities. Kink is my drug of choice. For Fennell, BDSM is both a scholarly pursuit and an after-hours activity. But for others, it's a profession. Anna is a professional dominatrix, or pro-dom. She says kink is so popular in D.C. because it's a way for the city's type A personalities to blow off some steam. I am something they can never have. And that's something that's very arousing to them and stimulating to be told, no, no. Anna sees about five clients a week, but never for sex. Repeat, Anna does not sleep with her clients. She has each client fill out a form so she understands what they are interested in. They also establish a safe word. And she has rules. Uh, They come right in and they know that they always are to show up in a suit, dressed very nicely. This is not a sweatpants and sneaker event. The client's requests vary. Some are there for flogging, and some just want to watch her change her boots. When they come in, I will be dressed as I am, and then I will prepare myself. And I think they really like to see that transformation. Anna often has individuals or couples who come to her to learn how to spice things up. And they can take those things and just really put a little play into their life and not be afraid of it and not feel dirty and wrong. Anna says her ultimate goal is to help people understand that BDSM isn't simply about brutality, but more about fun, sensuality, humor, and adventure. I'm Kristen Sorensen. Want to see photos of that dungeon Kristen visited? You can satisfy your curiosity at metroconnection.org. Now we turn to the literary side of things with our monthly segment, Bookend. In this edition, we'll hear from debut novelist Angela Flournoy. 
Flournoy's father hails from Detroit, her mother from Los Angeles. She grew up in Southern California. She's a graduate of the highly acclaimed Iowa Writers Workshop. Her first novel, The Turner House, is about a family that's lived on the same street in Detroit for more than half a century. But as the city starts to crumble, the family discovers its home is now worth less than a tenth of its mortgage. Flournoy moved to Washington, D.C. in 2012, and she left last year. She met up with Metro Connection's Jonathan Wilson downtown at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library, where she spent a lot of time working during her time in the nation's capital. When I first moved to Washington, D.C., I immediately knew I wanted to work for the library, but they weren't hiring. So I just waited and waited and kept going back to their website. And I had been um, in D.C. for a year before I finally got a call for an interview. And I ended up being a library associate, which is sort of like an assistant to the librarians. So I worked on a reference desk and I put on some programs. And it was outside of teaching writing probably the best job for a writer to have. How did you find D.C.? Were you writing when you were here? And and what was D.C. like for you? D.C. was a great city for me to write in because of the public transportation system. I lived in northeast D.C. I lived in Brookland, and then I lived in um, near Gallaudet, so I guess that's Noma slash maybe Trinidad. And um, I just was able to write at so many great coffee shops. I spent way too many hours at Trist and Adams Morgan, and it was, it's a great place to sort of be inside of your own head, sort of riding the, the metro all day. At what point were you in terms of your novel when you were here? I had written what I thought was the entire thing. But um, one thing about novelists is, like, it's never the end when you think it's the end. So I had written about 200 pages, and I had gotten an agent right before I left Iowa. And so I thought that, okay, six months, and then I'm done. But that wasn't the case. It was another two-year process. So I had... Um, really substantial revisions that I did when I was in D.C. and an entire section of my novel, all of the sections that are in the past. So the present day is 2008. The past is in the 1940s. All of the 1940s sections were written in D.C. Where did the story come from? Had it been in your head forever or was it something that kind of happened more recently? Um, Yeah, where did it come from? I think my earliest sort of idea about the novel came in 2009 when I visited my grandmother's house on the east side of Detroit. Um, It was the first time she wasn't living in the house. Uh, She had moved to the suburbs. So I just started to think about kind of all of the hard work that her and my um, grandfather and people like them, their neighbors, had done to sort of get into those houses and how within one generation those houses weren't worth even a tenth of what they paid for them and their neighborhood was pretty much sort of depopulated with more houses not operating than actually up and running. And from there, I kind of... You know, it sort of starts with an idea, but to me, personally, an idea is not a novel, a character. Now, that's like a story. I think, for me, it has to have a human element. So the first character that I sort of had a vision of is the youngest of this family of 13, um, Layla. I had a vision of this woman who was sneaking around in this house on the east side. So it sort of was like it opened up all of these questions and for me the way that i write i write to answer those questions for myself as well as to you know entertain the reader when was the first time that you actually sent some stuff out to try to get published and and had some success or you know were there lots of rejections i mean how did that work for you i had so many rejections when i was in graduate school everyone was applying to everything uh, to summer residencies and fellowships and everyone was sending their work out, and I was sort of I was there during a time with a lot of 
kind of like phenoms. So I maybe felt like a, a late bloomer. I think that the good thing for me is towards the end of my second semester at Iowa is when I started writing the novel. And I got tunnel vision. I didn't really want to write any stories. I didn't want to do anything else. It sort of kept me in an incubator in a way that I wasn't worried anymore, that I wasn't publishing short stories or things, places, because actually Jane Smiley did a master's class when I was at Iowa, and she said that if you're a novelist and you believe that what you do is long form, it's not short form, and they're both very difficult in their own ways, but she said you just have to accept that you are the tortoise. You're not the hare. (laughs) It's just going to take you longer. It's going to look like you're not doing anything, but then, you know, you'll end up at the finish line and it'll seem like it's overnight but it's not overnight it was years and years in the making what is your uh, method of writing your day-to-day I mean I've talked to novelists and some who wake up early in the morning and just write you know treat it like a work day like nine to five some people write in the middle of the night some people need to get out and go someplace outside their home to write what does your day-to-day writing life look like I write longhand first I do it for a lot of reasons one is that it seems less sort of final and lets me I'm like less beholden to what I've written. Having a notebook and not carrying your laptop everywhere and not having to be, that's like the reason why people leave a coffee shop. You can't find the corner next to the outlet. Your computer dies and you, you know, sort of wrap it up for the day. <laughs> that's like a sign that the day is over. And then you carry it, you know, it's heavy to carry around with you if you have a job or whatever. So I just would have a notebook and a pencil and it minimized excuses. When I got to the revision phase, obviously I had to have my computer then, but for the first time when I was just writing stuff, it sort of was a way for me to say, okay, I have two hours before this next thing. Okay, I'm just going to pop into this coffee shop and try to do some work. That was Angela Flournoy, author of the debut novel, The Turner House, speaking with Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Hans Anderson, Martin Ostermule, Lauren Ober, Jonathan Wilson, Tara Boyle, and Kristen Sorensen. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll spotlight Fairfax County, Virginia. We'll find out why it's an especially great place for kids with disabilities to play. We'll get the lowdown on the area's perennial traffic jams, and we'll look at the changing relationship between the county and Uncle Sam. The things that made Fairfax County what it is are not going to be the things that make it what it will be in the future. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.